Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, the good martini isn't good in the sense that, uh, oh, look at all these wonderful candidates that are running for the Democratic presidential nomination No, it's good that it's become a clown car situation, as by your count in the morning jolt today, we're potentially up to 21 people. If the folks we think are going to get in eventually get in, like Joe Biden, like Michael Bennett, the Colorado senator, who we hope first and foremost uh, recovers fully from his prostate cancer diagnosis with the surgery next week. But you've got uh, Eric Swalwell likely to jump in. You've got uh, these immense political forces like 88-year-old Mike Gravel and people that no one's heard of like Marianne Williamson and Wayne Messam getting in. And then today on the most solemn political forum one can think of known as The View, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan made his announcement. Here's how that sounded. When my father-in-law lost his job when Youngstown Sheet and Tube closed, Mm. he was off for 13 months, Uh just bought a new house. And go back 20 years, my cousin Donnie, who worked at the local plant, his last act at the factory was to unbolt the machine, put it in a crate, and send it to China. Mm. And I can go back just a few weeks where my daughter called me crying from school because her friend was crying to her. Her dad just got transferred at the local General Motors plant. The kids had to move. Yeah. And my daughter called me, and she said, you got to do something. And I said, I'm going to do something, and I'm going to run for president of the United States. And so then the crowd goes wild. So, uh, Jim, out of all the Democrats who could get the nomination, Tim Ryan would probably be one of the least scary of this batch uh, from our perspective, although we would still probably not prefer him. But with 21 people here, it's becoming really absurd, and it's going to make uh, the eventual nominee have to work really hard to to cut through the garbage here. Yeah. uh, First of all, it's a very interesting pitch from Tim Ryan that basically is everybody in my family All of my friends, all of my supporters have lost their jobs and had something terrible happen to them. That's why you need to vote for me to be president of the United States. Well, that's what happens to everybody who supports you. No, man, you're bad luck. You're jinxed. So, yeah, I mean, you know, by the standards of traditional Democrats, Ryan is on the moderate side. By the standards of the Bolsheviks who are running today, he's he's arch conservative by the standards of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um. What we, people ask, why is this a good martini? If this, particularly if this is something that Jim keeps complaining about, because every time one of these guys makes a noise about dipping their toe in the water, he's got to write another 20 things about them. And I'm not sure there are 20 interesting things about Tim Ryan uh, or Swalwell or uh, Michael Bennett. Although, you know, I should point out Michael Bennett had this very weird combination of announcements that he's uh, likely to announce he's running for president and he's got prostate cancer and he's having surgery next week. So, Senator, I hope that turns out well for you. Uh, you know, cancer is a serious thing and whatever our political perspective are, we're pulling for you on this with that, you know, with that aside, look, if you are a not so well-known Democrat and you think you can raise your profile and you think you can become, maybe you're not going to win the nomination, but you're going to become a major player from this. This is going to be good for you. It's going to set up some future statewide bid, uh, get you a TV gig, get you a bigger, you know, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I think the more people that get added, the more you are, the more likely you are to get lost in the crowd. 
um, putting together the list this morning. I mean, you can forget that Julian Castro is running for office. And I think, you know, you and I talking about him earlier this week, Greg, is probably the best publicity he's had in a while. <laughs> I exaggerate slightly. But, you know, Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, announced you can just forget about these people. There's a, a poll number that was out yesterday. They just ask people, you know, do you have a positive impression? Do you have a negative impression? Have you heard of this person, but you uh, don't really have much of an impression of them one way or the other? Or have you never heard of this person? And uh, Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii, was ranking near the bottom. And, Greg, this is a congresswoman who surfs. <laughs> you know, she, by, that, by, by age and gender and being from Hawaii and her militaries alone, you'd think she'd be standing out. And already someone like her is getting lost in the shuffle. It's very tough to stand out. When there are 20 candidates and my suspicion, you know, there, there's this um, behavioral psychologist who made the argument that we, you, when you go to the cereal aisle and you have a million different cereals and you only want to buy one, you kind of, you know, find yourself scratching your head and staring at indecision. That, you know, way, if you have a limited number of options, you do OK. If you, for example, go to the Cheesecake Factory and they hand you that lengthy novel of a menu with a leather bound book and you turn it chapter one, the appetizers. And there's this, you know, pages and pages of options. You can actually have a much harder time making the decision because you have so many options and you sort through it. Um, I think also that if you are a not well-known candidate, and at this point, I think this applies to Ryan. I think this applies to Bennett. I think this applies to, to Swalwell. Uh, Stacey Abrams is said on the morning Joe today that she's thinking about it, but she may not decide until sept- uh, September. By that point, by the way, there'll be three debates. So maybe her expectation is wait for the first wave of candidates to drop out and then she'll jump in again. Um, But I I think at some point this makes things tougher both for the party to unite, tougher for whoever the eventual nominee is. And also I think at some point this will begin to frustrate primary voters as they're sorting through all of these candidates who I, you know, no offense to any of them. I think they're kind of cookie cutter. I don't think these guys stand out. And if you've been in the house for, you know, two cycles or something, Great. Why don't you go be a good house member for a while? Uh, why don't you focus on your day job before you decide that the best way you can serve this country is to be the next commander in chief? Um, I, I, yeah, we're already joking about all, how they're going to need risers for the debates and they're splitting it over two nights and it's going to be two nights of 10 candidates on the state. You know, at some point, this is going to reach a point where the party is going to have to step in and say, hey, you know what? You got to clear a certain threshold. We don't think we're being mean by saying not every Tom, Dick and Harry should be running. And I point out, the three people we're waiting to hear for from still in this process, Greg, are um, Tom Daschle, Dick Gephardt, and Harry Reid. <laughs> so maybe they really would have every Tom, Dick, and Harry then. I think those guys are the few Democrats who aren't running this year, actually. Uh, Dick Gephardt 0 for 2, and the other two never did actually run. So uh, Harry Reid just decided to menace us from the U.S. Senate and never actually try to get to the White House. All right, let's move on to our... Bad martini now, Jim. And uh, we talked about Joe Biden a couple of times this week. And uh, Joe Biden and his team have put out written statements uh, addressing the complaints from Lucy Flores. And I think there's been a couple others emerged since then about how they felt uncomfortable with Biden's embrace at various events over the years. Um, So Biden uh, released a video yesterday, about two minutes long, where he talked about his personal style about how he thinks politics is a personal thing and he likes to embrace people, but he totally gets how things are changing. Here's uh, an excerpt from that video. And over the years, knowing what I've been through, the things that I've faced, I've found that scores, if not hundreds of people have come up to me and reached out for solace and comfort, something, something, anything that may help them get through the tragedy they're going through. And 
and uh, and, and so I, it's just just who, who I am. And I've never thought of politics as cold and antiseptic. I, I've always thought it about connecting with people. As I said, shaking hands, uh, hands on the shoulder, a hug, uh, encouragement. And now, and now it, it's all about taking selfies together. Uh, you know, social norms have begun to change. They've shifted. And the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. And so lots of different reactions uh, to that. Some saying that Biden seemed very sincere, that uh, he realizes he kind of came of age in a in a different era. Others uh, a little more worried about the, uh, the hair-smelling uh, habits here, including Louisiana Republican Senator John Kennedy. Do I consider it um, inappropriate to smell someone's hair? to get so close that I smell their hair? Yes. I mean, duh. You know, somebody gets close enough to smell my hair, they may, you know, get to smell my hair, but they may lose some teeth. You know, I mean, it's inappropriate. He also uh, paraphrased a movie title by saying, and there's no, it's no country for creepy old men. And uh, so, Jim, a couple of things here. I mean, Joe Biden, uh, we've seen all these public displays and uh, the, the pictures that have emerged here and now the stories that are that are coming out. He's never been known as a Lothario of the Senate, kind of like Ted Kennedy and, and other members were over the years. So in some ways, this seems uh, overblown. But uh, as we've mentioned a couple of times before, the Me Too movement uh, has sometimes uh, targeted people for the smallest things. And so uh, what goes around comes around here, I guess. So what do you make of how Biden's handling it? Sure. This is not a particularly good reason to say I'm never voting for Joe Biden. Uh, And it'd be kind of surprising if too many Democrats really took that stance, because most of them voted for Joe Biden at least twice for vice president. Maybe they voted for him in previous Democratic primaries. If they hold pretty much every Delaware Democrat probably voted for him a whole bunch of times. We've you know, one of the things that's been fascinating is to watch this. You know, now, you know, Greg, this is a serious topic that requires a national conversation <laughs> on invading people's spaces. When we were pointing this out for years and years and, and oh, you crazy right wingers. Oh, you know, now, look, I, so it, all in all, I, I think my boss, Rich Lowry, put it very well when he said Joe Biden's main problem is that he keeps interacting with people who are not as into Joe Biden as Joe Biden is into Joe Biden. <laughs> Uh, this is an issue of ego, not libido. But I kind of want to call him out. Just I just want to poke at him a little bit, uh, although maybe I should be careful. He might poke me back. Um, for, for three, a couple of things he says in that video that strike me as a little bit um, stealing a base, you could say. He, more than once, he refers to, I've always been an affectionate guy. I believe in shaking hands. Greg, has anyone objected to him shaking hands? Probably not. Right. I mean, this is, if he lumps a whole bunch of behaviors all together. Uh, and never quite mentions the smelling the hair and stuff like that. You know, you and I talked earlier in the week. No, no one has any objection to shaking hands. Hugs. Eh, OK, you know, um, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's fine. Kissing on the cheek. Uh, you know, probably it's good to check to make sure that other person is when you do this with strangers. All of a sudden it gets into a, uh, a, a more difficult area. In his explanation, he's talking about how it's kind of comforting. He wants to connect with people. Uh, people who've been through hard times. Well, that's fine. Again, no one's really objecting to hugs at a funeral or, or something like that, hugging the bereaved. In the case of the the uh, Nevada candidate, she describes them being backstage and all of a sudden the hands are on the shoulders and all that stuff. Um, 
He says, I've never believed politics should be antiseptic. This is a straw man, Greg. No one is calling, well, it's time for politics to be antiseptic or something. Nobody's saying we need to all be in those, um, what are those giant balls, kind of like giant hamster balls they put people in? <laughs> Uh, or the inflatable sumo suits that we never, so we never get too close to each other, or something like that. And when he says social norms have changed, Greg, when was, was it a generation ago or two generations ago where it was fairly standard to go up and smell people's hair? <laughs> I, I don't you know. I mean, I was around for the eighties. I, I you know, grew up, you know, came from age in the nineties. I don't, I don't remember people go, "Hey, how you doing?" <laughs> you know, that kind of deep inhale. <laughs> Maybe you might get a, oh, you smell nice today. At that point, that was generally meant to say, oh, what perfume are you wearing? What cologne are you wearing? Or something like that. But generally, you know, there's a kind of a delicate social grace area when it comes to people's smells and stuff like that. So, yeah, this is Joe Biden being Joe Biden. He's always been this way. He's always been a clod, which makes some of this sound like it's a little bit of of an overreaction. The other kind of weird thing, look, I'm glad that he's acknowledging it. This is, you know, as far as apologies go or statements of regret or that's fine. But um, as one of my colleagues said to me, Craig, uh, area 76 year old pledges to change. <laughs> Good luck, right? Yeah, I mean, he might. I, you know, maybe maybe he becomes very, uh, very careful about this sort of thing. But my guess is Joe Biden is set in his ways. Most people did not find it extraordinarily objectionable at the time, although maybe they probably found it a little bit weird or uncomfortable. It would be a habit. It would be good for him to break, but um, I I wouldn't count on it. So, uh, ladies, you get to your Biden, you know, (laughs) keep keep your distance. Run if you see him coming. (laughs) Some of the videos shows that, you know, he'll greet people as he's getting off a plane or uh, just gives them a hug. But then he doesn't really let go. He just keeps uh, the hands around the waist and so forth. But here's the thing I want to do the follow up on, and that's that you've got some folks on the left writing op-eds, hey, don't be so quick to kick Joe Biden to the curb. He might very well be our best and possibly only shot at actually winning in 2020. At the same time, you've got folks on the right saying, hey, be careful. Uh, Joe Biden, while really far to the left, is not a full-blown socialist, so he might be about as good as you can get in the top tier. So what do you make of those analyses? When I did my 20 things on Biden, it is worth noting that he pretty much is wherever – the winds of the Democratic Party are blowing, meaning that when he was, you know, supporting the death penalty and touting his tough on crime bills and, and things like that in the mid 90s, it's not because he was a dramatic centrist, that he was a Zell Miller or Joe Lieberman or somebody who was really breaking with the rest of the party. The general cultural current was in that direction or something like that. So I don't think you can say, oh, um, Joe Biden has always represented the right wing of the left wing party or anything like that. I think you know, he goes wherever the consensus of the party is, which means that if he were elected president, I don't think he would be dramatically centrist or something like that. Having said that, you know, Joe Biden is the guy who was vice president for eight years. I'm sure he's very proud of his record from, that, from back then. And I don't think he looks at America at the end of 2016 and says, well, this place is a mess and we need a socialist revolution to clean it all up. Um, so he may mouth the words. He may try to sing from the songbook. But I think it's safe to say uh, that Joe Biden would be an establishmentarian uh, Democrat. I'll let listeners decide whether an establishmentarian Democrat is really that much of an improvement over the status quo. Um, it is probably better than, you know, Bernie Sanders' socialist revolution. But uh, let's face it, Greg, that's not a terribly high bar to clear. All right. Let's move on to our third martini, our crazy martini. And Jim, we're back to anonymous sources and the Mueller report. First, uh, New York Times. Some of Robert S. Mueller III's investigators have told associates that Attorney General William P. Barr failed to adequately portray the findings of their inquiry 
and that they were more troubling for President Trump than Mr. Barr indicated, according to government officials and others familiar with their simmering frustrations. At stake in the dispute, the first evidence of tension between Mr. Barr and the special counsel's office is who shapes the public's initial understanding of one of the most consequential government investigations in American history. Some members of Mr. Mueller's team are concerned that because Mr. Barr created the first narrative of the special counsel's findings, Americans' views will have hardened before the investigation's conclusions become public. Over at the Washington Post, members of Mueller's team have complained to close associates that the evidence they gathered on obstruction was alarming and significant. Quote, it was much more acute than Barr suggested, said one person who, like others, spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the subject's sensitivity. The report was prepared, quote, so that the front matter from each section could have been released immediately or very quickly, the official said. It was done in a way that minimum redactions, if any, would have been necessary and the work would have spoken for itself. But over at the New York Times... The special counsel's office never asked Mr. Barr to release the summary soon after he received the report, a person familiar with the investigation said, and the Justice Department quickly determined that the summaries did contain sensitive information like classified material, secret grand jury testimony, and information related to current federal investigations that must remain confidential, according to two government officials. So, Jim, what do you make of these anonymous sources fretting over the fact that uh, Attorney General Barr may not have given the full story in his summary here? Well, I guess if you want to run the anonymous sources, give hint as what's in Miller report, uh, the window for that kind of story is closing. So get it in <laughs> while you can. Mid-April is when Barr expects to have it released. And, and we'll know then uh, whether you know Barr mischaracterized anything, exaggerated anything, uh, something like that. One of the re- you know, I, look, I'm sure some of these things are mat- are a matter of interpretation and perspective, and and maybe there are some folks on Mueller's team who looked at that and said, boy, that really soft pedals what we found on the obstruction of justice stuff or something like that. It would help if these papers could be clearer with their sourcing and the fact that they're not being clear with their sourcing is the sort of thing that's going to raise eyebrows and make some people suspicious. It sounds like they're not hearing from members of Mueller's team. It sounds like they're hearing from the associates of members of Mueller's team. So they're getting it secondhand. They're getting it through that kind of interpretive lens. Maybe, you know, um, you know this way, could it be? I suppose. But, you know, something I, I wrote about today and I think is kind of worth noting, Barr and Mueller have known each other for a really long time, going back to the first George, to the George H.W. Bush administration. So, you know, again, they, they apparently their wives are our friends. Apparently Mueller went to the two of the weddings of, of Barr's daughters. Um, this is not by the way, I don't think necessarily means that either one is biased or, or, you know, incapable of doing their jobs professionally. Uh, it just indicates that I think there's a great deal of respect between these two guys. And I just don't see Barr taking some, you know, report of somebody he respects a great deal and then really misconstruing it or really, you know, misinterpreting it, particularly when he's promised to release either the whole thing or as much of the whole thing as possible. Once you take out the grand jury information, stuff related to other cases. And I assume, you know, uh, sources and methods of classified information. You know, my it's, it's more than 300 some pages. We'll see. If the whole thing is blacked out, then yeah, Democrats are going to throw a fit and they'll have a good reason for it. But if it's, you know, of those 300 plus pages, most of them are pretty clear and it feels like a complete report, we're going to know. And Barr is going to look really foolish if, it, you know, it turns out, well, actually, we found a whole big pile of obstruction of justice evidence. Here it all is. Uh, and if people feel like Barr's letter, you know, um, soft peddled it or or covered up something or something like that. So we're going to know in a couple of weeks. I, I noticed, in, you know, that G- Gerald Nadler, you know, the committee voted him the authorization to subpoena the report, the Mueller report. And then he didn't 
uh, issue the subpoena. He said he wants to give uh, Barr some time to, you know, kind of like a, he's kind of you know, rattling the saber. He kind of wants uh, Barr to move on it. I think Move's got his own kind of internal deadline. I think they're probably moving with all deliberate speed, but they don't want to rush through this sort of thing. This is important. Um, if you're Barr, the safest thing to do in this situation is to do everything by the book, make a list, check it twice, make sure every I is dotted, every T is crossed. You know, that's, um, and the Democrats, because they're so convinced there's got to be something good in there, uh, they're really freaking out about this. So we'll see. My guess is this is probably just a matter of interpretation. Um, but I guess this, you know, we, we've already gotten our first thing. The, the other thing is you, whatever, if, if all 300 some pages get released and it doesn't have what the Rachel Maddows of the world were, hope, were hoping for. Greg, do you, th- I mean, the next step will be, well, now we need all the underlying information. We need all the documents. We need all the investigative materials because I'm sure there will be Democrats who will be convinced that Donald Trump committed some serious crime and Mueller just didn't notice it in the course of a two-year investigation. Well, we know that there's some argument for obstruction and some argument against obstruction. So whatever the some argument for it is, as much of that as it gets released is going to be the red meat for the Democrats here. And they're going to have something to to hang their hats on. The question is how much is really there. So obviously not enough for Attorney General Barr to think that that's worth pursuing in any way. But uh, that, yeah, won't, that won't stop them from making a lot of noise. Blacked out. OK. All right. Now you got a fair objection. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it's going to be that. I think you're going to have, you know, um, you know, probably small. Every, I, my suspicion is because the Barr team is working with the Mueller team, that all of the redactions will be fairly easy to justify. They're not going to go into too many gray areas. They're not going to push the envelope. If you're Barr, you want everything to be, you know, by the book and appropriate. You don't want to, uh, you know, Barr is sabotaging the other indictments that are going out from other offices because he released the information or, or something like that. So my, we'll see. You know, there could be a heck of a lot uh, redacted from all this, but my suspicion is, is that Barr will do everything appropriate and that the fine, well, some Democrats will still insist, ah, look at all the stuff Mueller found. This could have been obstruction of justice. And, you know, some may very well choose to pursue impeachment based upon that. My sense, if, if Mueller felt like this was, you know, worthy of charges, Mueller would have come forward and said, I'm recommended charges. The fact that he punted on this indicates to me that this was not a slam dunk. This was probably right on that, you know, on the knife's edge, so to speak. It's almost a, a, a version of the Comey uh, strategy on Hillary. I don't want to prosecute. I'm going to put this out there. I'll let the American people decide. And that's probably the right you know, course of action on this. Yeah, exactly. And Rosenstein agreed with him. And the left has been protecting Rosenstein. So uh, whatever Barr's decision is, Rosenstein has gone along with it. Uh, it's been fun to watch the left uh, uh, label Barr as Trump's handpicked attorney general because all the other attorneys general in American history were not nominated by a president at all. It's amazing how that... Well, uh, Greg, no, this is an, or- <laughs> an organic artisan attorney general. <laughs> Um, a lot of other administrations, they pick them by machine, you know, they're all automated. They say automation is coming for all of our jobs. And, uh, you know, this is a handpicked one that, you know, I think it really brings out the flavor of the attorney general. (laughs) It's amazing watching the messaging. So, uh, I'm sure the news will be chock full wall to wall today of the Tim Ryan presidential announcement. Try to, uh, try to pace yourself with all the coverage of that. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. One last thought, though, Greg. God, how many interviews is Tim Ryan going to have to explain? No, I'm not Paul Ryan. That was the Republican guy. <laughs> That's right. No, it was a totally different House member from the Midwest. No, he, he was young. Uh, 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 never mind. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm Paul Ryan. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.